Uh, the rest of us staying in here, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 30. That passage is also printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, thanks uh, for your flexibility with our uh, different decor this morning. Uh, like we said at the beginning, Phyllis Wheatley has an event going on here tomorrow, and so they gave us extra padded chairs for our worship service. So we'll get to enjoy those just this once. Um, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, have you ever gotten... Um, a text message from someone and it just said, hey, we need to talk about something. When can you get together? And then you just have to, and they don't tell you what they want to talk about. And then you just have to wait and anticipate whatever it is they want to get together to talk about. And, and you're just thinking, would you please just tell me what it is that you want to talk about? And because the whole time you are, you are going to anticipate that there's a really hard conversation coming. And so you're just going to be thinking back over your relationship with this person, your recent interactions, and think, did I say something? Did I not say something? Did I do something? Did I forget something? What is happening? You're just anticipating a hard conversation. Um, to this day, with my three children, if I say something like, hey, kids, come in here and sit down. We need to talk about something for a minute. It's like instant panic over their face, like, oh, no, something bad happened. Dad's going to say something really bad to us right now. Um, waiting to have a conversation about a difficult subject matter is a really hard spot to be in. And that's kind of where we're at in our series this morning with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous teaching. And it's a little bit wild that people are so drawn to it because he literally gets into some of the most personal and precious areas of our lives. And he calls us into a very different way of life. And sometimes these conversations can be really difficult. This morning, Jesus speaks into our lust and our sexuality. And this can be a really difficult conversation for us to have for lots of reasons. Um, aside from the fact that it can just feel awkward, it can also carry a lot of shame for all of us. Um, most of us can feel like a cloud of shame drift over us when we start thinking about our past. And maybe just the topic makes us feel a little bit yucky and, and we just don't want to think about it and we don't want to talk about it. Um, and sometimes that sense of shame about ourselves and our own story can lead us to not think so much about ourselves and our own mistakes that we made, but instead sort of look at culture out there and think about how, how twisted modern day sexuality is out there, which that's another conversation, legitimate concern for sure. But in doing so, when we think about what's out there, we can, we can sort of lose focus of the brokenness and sinfulness of our own hearts in this area, which is where Jesus is aiming in this passage. So let me read our passage for us. Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 30. This is Jesus speaking. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we just confess again this week that we need to hear from you. We need your spirit to speak to us, to apply these words to our hearts and our individual situations and lives. We really do want to be different, Father. We want to be transformed and to change and to grow. And we need your help to hear from you during this time. So, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts 
would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, The grocery store uh, chain Trader Joe's is frequently at the top of customer satisfaction surveys, always gets really high customer satisfaction awards. If you've ever been to Trader Joe's, uh, you may have experienced this. Um, They have really high and really unique standards for how they do things at Trader Joe's. And Forbes magazine actually did a write-up on this. And um, some of the things they talked about in Forbes magazine were the employee culture at Trader Joe's. Really happy. If you've ever been there, you're like, yeah, they always seem so glad to be there. Happy employees, engaged employees. They actually love their job. Um, The business model for Trader Joe's is very simple. Um, Simplicity is really key for them. No sales, no coupons, high quality food, but like really limited product offering. So it's like, it's very predictable experience if you go there to go shopping. Uh, The atmosphere gets talked about a lot at Trader Joe's. Uh, It's really fun, really relaxed. All the employees wear Hawaiian shirts. Who doesn't love Hawaiian shirts? Um, You walk into the grocery store and you actually are like happy to be there. Like it feels good to go into Trader Joe's. It's a really convenient place. The store's not too big. Again, the limited product offering. They, they do things to limit the lines where you don't have to wait in line a long time. And then they really welcome feedback. You'll notice there's always that feedback, um, feedback box that they have uh, by the customer service desk. And they actually do that. Stores have been known to change their hours based on feedback and things like that. Uh, but Trader Joe's has really high and really unique standards. And so to work at Trader Joe's is a really high calling because you have to embody these high and unique standards to keep them going. What we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount is a really high and unique standard for following the way of Jesus. So for us to be followers of Jesus is a really high calling because we are called to then embody these really high and these unique standards. And these standards feel especially high when we get into a topic like our sexuality and our lust. And so two headings I want to think about this passage under this morning. We're going to look at a higher standard and a higher calling. All right, first point this morning, this morning, a higher standard. You see this familiar pattern with Jesus in verses 27 and 28. So in this context, there were these religious leaders, the Pharisees of the day, um, that were trying to minimize God's law, make it attainable, make it doable. So they would take a, a, a really, um, they would kind of misinterpret the law and, and take it in a really literalistic sense that would make it doable. So they could check the box and say that they had or had not done this certain thing. Uh, but Jesus came to deal with our hearts, not just our external behavior, but our internal thoughts and motivations. And so he gives this pattern of saying, all right, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, And what he's saying when he does that is he's saying that you've heard that it was said. You've heard this thing misinterpreted in this way. What I say to you is this. It is much deeper, much more comprehensive than you first realized. He does that here. Look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, so for the Pharisees, for the religious leaders, they could think about this. This is the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And maybe they would think about that, and strictly speaking, they hadn't broken that commandment. So they could check that box and say, nope, I'm good there. But then Jesus raises a bar. Uh, This law is not just forbidding us from sleeping with someone else's spouse, but this is even including lustful thoughts about somebody else. 
Jesus is expanding the law here. He's talking about any lustful thoughts or actions outside of the covenant relationship of marriage between one woman and one man. He's saying that any other use of our sexuality outside of God's design for marriage is actually a misuse of what God intended. That's the full range. Anything between adultery, lustful thoughts, pornography, anything in between there is a misuse of what God intended for our sexuality. And this is a really high and unique standard. And because it's such a high standard, it means that none of us have met that standard. That we're all guilty. Who can live up to that? Not one lustful thought. Zoom out for a moment. Why is this such a big deal? Uh, This is a big deal because sex is a good gift from God. Back at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, This is describing in Genesis 2 beautiful intimacy between a husband and a wife before sin enters the story in Genesis chapter 3. But sin then enters the picture in Genesis 3 and it ruins God's good gifts. In Genesis 2, the way things were created, sex between husband and wife was a beautiful, God-honoring gift. And it's a gift that he has given us to use and to enjoy within its prescribed parameters. And the one fleshness that's described in Genesis 2 is a holistic, all-of-life, whole-self commitment. Tim Keller, who I'll quote a few times this morning, describes it as, quote, God's created way to say to someone else, I belong wholly and exclusively to you. And he says, when we do that, our hearts go along with our bodies. And so contrary to what hookup culture tells us, um, physical intimacy is not just some impersonal, random physical act with someone else. It is an all-of-life, whole self-commitment, and it's beautiful in the eyes of God when we follow His way with our sexuality. Uh, And because it is so beautiful and so powerful for its intended purpose, it can be really damaging to us when we misuse this gift. Uh, Back in the early 1980s, there was a hotel that was built in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, uh, the Hyatt Regency Hotel. Uh, This part of town was booming, um, and the design and the construction of the hotel was expedited um, in order to get this hotel open so they could start hosting guests. About a year after the Hyatt Regency opened, they started hosting these Friday night dances. And so everyone would get off work, and they would go down, and they would do these dances in the beautiful lobby of this new hotel. And they became really, really popular. And um, uh, part of the the draw was the architectural design of the inside of this lobby. They had uh, three or four really beautiful glass and concrete walkways that went across the lobby. And so it it was sort of this architectural masterpiece to come and look at these beautiful glass and concrete walkways and the dances would be on the floor and on the and on the, these walkways and sort of all over the lobby atrium area well one of these dances it was I think the last one they were doing of the year is one of the most well attended out of nowhere two of these giant walkways collapsed right in the middle of the dance and so there were people standing on these walkways tons of people down below 
And um, it ended up being a massive tragedy. Over 100 people were killed. Hundreds of people were injured. Of course, um, billions of dollars in lawsuits came out of it. It was just a massive tragedy. And it's become something that's really studied a lot by engineers and architects in design. Um, they've gone back and they researched what happened. And basically, two of these walkways, um, though they were really um, beautiful and unique in their design, they were not installed properly. Uh, both in the design phase and the construction phase, they didn't follow proper guidelines. And so instead of having this beautiful architectural masterpiece, it ended up being a total disaster and a, just a massive tragedy. Um, good things are only truly good when they are used in the way they were intended to be used. Uh, misusing our sexuality outside of God's design in marriage can be really detrimental to us. And, you know, sometimes um, we talk about wanting freedom, and, and, and people would, would absolutely apply that to how they express their sexuality. I want freedom when it comes to sexuality. And, and, and what some people can mean by freedom is the absence of any restraint at all. I don't want any restraints. Don't tell me what to do. I want, it, I want to do this how I want to do this. Uh, but Tim Keller suggests a very different definition of freedom. He says freedom is, is not the absence of restraint. He says freedom is actually the presence of right restraint. He says that when the, when the right restraints are in place, that's when we can actually enjoy things in freedom. Think about the Hyatt Regency. If those walkways had the right restraints in place, those guests could have enjoyed them that evening freely in the way they were meant to be enjoyed. Freedom is the presence of right restraint, not the absence of restraint. Following God's way for our sexuality is where true freedom lies. Everything else, contrary to what we think, will actually just lead to further enslavement. It's a high standard. Even for our lustful thoughts to cause us to be guilty before God. And Jesus doesn't really let off the gas there. He raises the bar with this higher standard. Then he gives us this higher calling. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What's he saying? He's telling us to take temptation seriously. It's deliberately overstated. It's a way of getting a point of cross to, to go to extreme measures to protect yourself from temptation. When we moved into our house, the, the back corner of our yard was filled with bamboo. Uh, bamboo is, it grows super fast. It spreads rapidly. I cringe every time I see it because of our experience with it. Uh, there would be times where, where I'd go back there. And it was maybe like six or seven feet tall. This whole corner of our yard, I go back there with like hedge trimmers and things like that. And I would, and a few times I cut it down to where it was just like a foot off the ground. And, uh, and it felt like it would grow so fast that I would just like walk back to the house and turn around. It would already have grown like two or three feet. I mean, it's like you can see it growing. It grows so fast, it doesn't stop. And so we knew that if we were going to get rid of it, we had to take extreme measures. I mean, our neighbors had like buried plastic barriers in the ground to prevent the roots from spreading into their yard. So we ended up calling this guy who came out with a tractor. He dug up the bamboo uh, at the roots. Um, and, and then we just drenched the area with weed killer. And then he was like, all right, then you have to keep spot treating it for the next year uh, when you see it popping up. And he's like, but look, I'm offering no guarantees on my work. 
He's like, we could do all this, and it might come back a year from now. I can't guarantee anything. We're like, okay, we got to do this. Um, but we had to take extreme measures if we were really going to get rid of this bamboo. We got rid of the bamboo. It's gone forever. Jesus is telling us to go to extreme measures to fight our temptation. Why? Sin is not good for us. It ruins us. And he loves us so much that he's telling us that. He's warning us of that. The late Puritan theologian John Owen said, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Our sin kills us. Proverbs 6.27 says, in referring to sexual temptation, it says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? It's playing with fire. All right, what are some extreme measures that we could take against sexual temptation? You'll notice that the actions Jesus suggests are pretty extreme. Now, again, he's deliberately overstating it here. He doesn't really mean gouge your eye out or cut your hand off. So don't worry about that. But these are things that are incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly inconvenient, would require immediate sacrifice. Things you do not want to happen. But he's saying it's worth it. Um, That our sin is that destructive and it's that harmful to ourselves and to others that ultimately it's going to separate us from God forever if we don't do anything about it. So he's saying what short-term sacrifices can you make right now in order to stay close to God forever? And so for us, the, the, the measures that we would take would depend on the unique and the specific ways in which we are tempted. And so this will be good to kind of think through with a trusted Christian friend. But here's some things that it might include. Um, it might include getting monitoring software, something like Covenant Eyes software on your phone or your iPad or your computer that would make certain websites inaccessible uh, or maybe that would, it would share your internet browsing history with one or two close friends. It might mean deleting a certain app from your phone that causes you to go places you just don't want to go. It might mean something a bit more extreme, getting rid of a smartphone altogether. Again, these are things that would, that would be inconvenient and would be a sacrifice to do right now, but would benefit you in the long run. It might be canceling a streaming service, maybe not watching certain shows, not reading certain books, maybe not going certain places, maybe not to certain bars or certain parties, whatever that is for you. Could be something really drastic. Maybe you're really tempted by a potential relationship with someone at work, and maybe it means changing jobs. Um, Whatever the specifics are for you, it will be inconvenient in the short term, but will lead to greater nearness to Jesus in the long term. And this idea of sacrifice now for the sake of eternity with Jesus is just kind of baked into the way of following him. Uh, Later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that's what it means to follow Jesus. It means to come and deny yourself, take up the way of the cross, and to follow. He says, for whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Saving your life means you lose it. Getting all that stuff in the short term right now means you can lose it long term. But sacrificing that stuff in the short term now means you gain for the long term. Uh, Following Jesus is not the easy way. It's the way of the cross. 
Uh, It means denial and, and suffering in this life. But we can actually do so willingly and even joyfully because of the promise of the next life with him. Zoom out and, and think about Jesus himself. Um, in, the, in the gospel accounts, in the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where you see Jesus' life, we see that Jesus came and he, he took on flesh, and he did that to come and rescue us and to free us from our sin. And, and that in his life, he was actually tempted in the ways that we are tempted. That he knows what it's like. Yet the big difference between us and Jesus is what, that we gave into temptation, he never did. He never sinned. Instead, he lived a perfectly righteous life. And he did so on our behalf. Um, Jesus lived in perfect sexual purity. Never sinning in thought, word, or action. And where does that take him? You would think that that perfection would lead to blessing and reward. Um, Here's the paradox. The only one to never entertain a lustful thought, he's the one who goes to the cross. And on that cross is given all of our lustful thoughts and actions and all the shame that goes along with it. He took all that on himself in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You could say it this way. For our sake he made him to be sexual sin who knew no sexual sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what this means for you. Jesus took your lustful thoughts upon himself and paid for them in full. Jesus took your use of pornography upon himself and paid for it in full. Jesus took your broken sexual past upon himself and paid for it in full. And and into that, the cloud of shame that still lingers when you think about your past or your current struggles, uh, verses like Isaiah 1.18 speak into it that say, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Uh, the good news for people like us who misuse our lust and our sexuality is that in Christ, no matter what you've done or no matter what you've even thought, God has declared you not guilty. We've been washed as white as snow. Our sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And there are no qualifications, no exceptions, no outstanding circumstances that are unique to you. You're not the exception to that. You've been forgiven. It's been paid in full. And it's done. And if we really want to see our lust and our sexuality transformed, then we need to keep the grace of Jesus at the center of our lives. Building in these boundaries, these parameters that we just talked about is super important, really helpful. But the thing that will transform our hearts for the long term is to be uh, in an intimate love relationship with Jesus. Where we're so captivated by his love and his grace and his mercy, so filled with it that we're not looking for that love anywhere else outside of him. Where he's what we want the most. And even the good gift of sex that God has given us is pointing to something greater. Keller says it this way. He says, one reason we can burn with seemingly uncontrollable passion is because at the moment our hearts believe the lie that if we have a great romantic experience, we will finally feel deeply fulfilled. But deep down, we know that's not true. Those images will never fulfill us. That casual encounter will never fulfill us. Even wonderful intimacy within marriage will never fulfill 
fulfill us. It's pointing us to the only place that we can be truly fulfilled. It's pointing us to Jesus. The intimacy we long for can be found in Jesus. The vulnerability and acceptance we long for can be found in Jesus. The satisfaction we long for can be found in Jesus. There's a pastor who tells a story about a lady that he met who was not a Christian and uh, he um, started talking with her about faith and things like that and there was this um, concert coming up uh, that where they were going to have a, a, a speaker there that was going to share the gospel, talk about Jesus. And so this pastor invited this, this woman uh, to come to the concert to hear the music but also because he wanted her to hear the gospel as well. And um, pastor didn't know much about the speaker that would be there. Uh, so they go to this concert. When they get there, um, this pastor didn't realize that the person speaking was going to be speaking on the topic of sex. And so he just kind of, maybe how, that's maybe how you felt this morning. But he just kind of cringed. He was like, oh no, what, you know, what's, what's the speaker going to do? How's this going to come across? He got really nervous about it because he was thinking about his friend that didn't know Jesus. He wanted her to know Jesus. And um, the speaker, to make his point at the beginning of the talk, held up this beautiful, perfectly good rose and, and just kind of smelled it and said, look how beautiful this is. It's perfect. It's pure. Um, while I'm speaking today, I'm going to pass this rose around to everyone here. And apparently there are about a thousand people there listening to the speaker. And so they just pass around the audience and it goes all the way around. And so everyone is touching the rose, smelling it, feeling how soft the petals are, passing around a thousand people. And then the speaker starts to speak. And, um, and the pastor is reflecting on this because he was there in the audience. He just said that it was one of the worst um, just explanations, uh, talks on the topic of sex and sexuality that he had ever heard. He just berated people for, uh, for not following God's way in this area of their life, made them feel terrible for all the mistakes that they made. There was no grace, no mercy, no hope, no pointing to Jesus, none of that. And they just went on. And it was just a total kind of cringy moment with this guy speaking. And at the end, the, the rose had gotten kind of all the way around. He's like, where is it? Let me, let me see it. So, and so the guy, the speaker, gets the rose back. And as you would imagine, one rose passed around you know, a bunch of people touching it and all that. It's going to be a mess, right? The petals are falling off, and, and it, it's, there, there's, there's nothing left to it. It's all damaged. It's no good anymore. And this is sort of the culmination of the speaker's point. He takes the rose. He holds it up. It's falling apart. It's not beautiful anymore. It's damaged. And, and, he, and, and, and this was his big point. He says, look at this rose. Who would want this rose? And the whole idea was like, this is what's going to happen. If you misuse your sexuality, you're going to be damaged and no one's going to want you. And the pastor, as he's reflecting on this story, he's thinking about this woman next to him who does not know Jesus and doesn't know the hope of the gospel. And he's thinking about this whole room full of people who now just feel really guilty and they feel like the damaged rose that no one's going to want. And they're thinking, therefore, God's not going to want me. And the pastor is just sitting there and, he, and, he's, and he's said he's screaming inside himself because when the speaker is holding up this damaged rose and says, who's going to want this rose? He's screaming inside. He says, Jesus. Jesus wants the rose. That that's the whole point of the gospel. Um, if you're here this morning and you feel damaged because of your past, you feel like that rose. Or you feel really overwhelmed with guilt and shame. You feel too dirty, too yucky, even for God. Know that Jesus wants you. That he loves you. And that he actually welcomes you to himself. He invites you to himself. Don't believe the lie that you're too damaged or too broken, that your past is too messy. Believe the truth that Jesus sees you and he loves you. 
and He forgives you. And maybe just one practical application this morning. This may be the the most extreme measure that you could take. Um, You might be in a place right now where you feel so trapped, where you're struggling with some sort of sexual sin or temptation or something like that, and you feel all alone and you've not talked to anyone about it ever before. Um, Maybe the extreme measure for you is to talk to someone. Just to to have a conversation about it, to open up about it. I'll never forget, many years ago, um, a man came into my office and he had been battling um, pornography for over 10 years, had never said it out loud, never told another person. And as he opened up to me, I could sort of see the cloud of shame lift off of him as we began to talk about it. And it was like there was actually hope that he might be able to change and might be transformed and not struggle anymore. Um... The fact that Jesus already knows us and loves us and forgives us frees us to open up to one another about this. So maybe that's the extreme measure is just to take the next step and have a conversation today. All right, let's stop there and let me pray for us. Father, thank you for good news. For good news in the face of, of difficult things like our um, messy, inconsistent, damaged stories of our sexuality and our brokenness in this area of life. Um, We confess that we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your help. Um, Thanks for meeting us. We pray, Spirit, you continue to to transform us and and to um, be so captivated with the love of Jesus that we begin to, to walk in a new way, even with things as personal as our sexuality. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.